So how is <sighs> uh, <laughs> how is telecommuting across 14 time zones going for you? You'd think it get easier over time, but it really doesn't. <laughs> I, I don't think... Yeah, I don't think there is any reason for it to get easier because you are not... You're not exactly... You're not in New Mexico time zone. You are just flitting in and out of it. So it's like yeah, being so on, on permanent the weekends, I, jet lag. Yeah, so on the weekends, I, you know, I sort of reset back to Singapore time because... You know, and then on weekdays, I have to force myself to switch back to New Mexico time, which is rather jarring on the on the circadian rhythm. I, I, I think. Yeah. Uh, but you know, overall, I mean, this week has been tough for for no reason other than the fact that I have to grade an exam. <laughs> and you know, for any educators, you know, educators will know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, yep. regular assignments are enough of a pain, and exams are where that pain gets amplified multiple times because you have to grade a lot more. Yeah, <laughs> than you would in a normal assignment. Yeah, and I mean grading in general is just the worst part of teaching. It really is, and I'm not you know I'm not grading multiple choice questions which can be auto graded. I'm grading essays. Yeah. Um, and and I mean we could talk about this a little bit. You know, I I was very surprised. Um, I mean to be fair, New Mexico isn't exactly the number one state in terms of education. Uh, it's not the richest state as well. Um. And so the standard of writing was not what I expected. I think. Right. Right. And and you know, to, to to be fair, you know, my prior experience of teaching Americans has been an exchange student from UNC Chapel Hill. So right. I guess the comparison isn't exactly there. Right. I mean, it is. It's it's kind of okay. So it's kind of unfortunate because the fact is. When it comes to education, the U.S. is really a, a country of extremes. Yeah. Yeah. So, on, on if the, you're from Massachusetts, if you're from Connecticut, yeah, and you know, not even across Connecticut, right? If you're from the richer uh, mm. counties in Connecticut, yep. you know, you'll be fairly well off. You have a re- yeah. reasonable chance of getting into UConn or to Yale. You know. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, the thing is, it's it's very. You know, when you when you are looking at Singapore, Singapore is an outlier in so many ways, right? But one of the the things that is very um, challenging when you're looking at Singapore as a country and comparing it against other countries is that because Singapore is so small and so compact, it's very easy to implement centralized policy. Right, fair and enough. that's yeah. something that you really don't see in a lot of countries. Um, even ones that are relatively, um, that have a relatively strong central control. Because, like for example, if you mm-hmm. think about, say, um, Spain, which is very mm-hmm. regionalist, but still has yes. still maintains like a relatively strong central government, um, their their educational policy does vary by region, and it has to because you you don't really want um, a central government dictating that you know okay th- this is one of like it's 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 kind of an economic problem in a sense which is that um the people who know most what kind of education or what kind of resources are most demanded or most in demand right are the people on the ground in the local in the locality pretty much 
Yeah. And so yeah. that's why generally in a large enough country, the education is, you know, education is um, organized by at the state level or even at like the county level, as in the US, mm-hmm. right, rather than mm-hmm. at the federal level. And um, the result is that you get this massive variance um, in educational outcomes, yeah. basically. Yeah, and of course, yeah. that's not independent of all the other variants that occurs in the US, right? Because like, there is and, a reason. You know, yeah. There is a reason why Massachusetts and Connecticut have such good public education outcomes, which is that white people. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there is there is that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. And and I think the thing that struck me a lot is that a lot of these kids that I'm teaching don't have any grounding in writing. I think this Mm -hmm. is also, I mean, to to, to some extent, a part, uh, a function of the fact that the SAT doesn't actually teach or doesn't actually demand proper writing skills. Nope. The SAT essays, I think, I mean, goodness knows, we did the SATs how many donkey years ago? Um, But it didn't, the writing was... you know, fairly uncritical, fairly formulaic. And actually, um, this is a good question. How long ago? 12 years ago, I think, for me. Oh, dear God. 12. Yeah, yeah. there we go. Yeah, thereabouts. Right. Yeah. And and I, I never felt the writing section at the SAT to be particularly nope. rigorous. Nope. Right. It's... They're just looking for, you know, can you string a sentence together that's relatively they were, syntactically they there? They were also fairly clear, I think, that for the SATs... Um, for the writing portion of the SATs, um, that they were looking for a very specific kind of skill, which was um, the ability to put together an argument that has a certain structure to it, which firstly is very difficult to judge. Um, And secondly, the other thing that they kind of explicitly say is that your writing does not have to be factual. (laughs) <laughs> right. As long as it has but some you know, logical coherence to it, but I think those two things are very but, difficult to separate. Right. So I. The, but the, that is funny because right. I am teaching. You know, I am grading argumentative writing right now, and I'm not seeing any of that skill sort of nope. coming through from majority of the students at all. Actu- you know, actually, never mind the, the. Sorry. I was going to say this is a thing. Um, I am not sure. I mean, in in the intervening twelve years, I'm pretty sure the SAT has has changed. I'm actually not even sure if the writing is a is a part of the core SAT anymore. Actually, oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and I think a part of it is just the pure difficulty of grading. Um, sure. Sure. I I okay, <laughs> I mean, in general, grading is one of the uh, grading writing is one of the hardest. I mean, we talked about standardized testing in our yep. last episode, right? I think great, um, yep. I keep saying grading. Writing is one of the hardest things to grade in a standardized manner just because it is, it, it, it does not really lend itself to being all graded against one type of rubric. Yeah, there's too much variability. Right? Yeah. There's too much variability going on, you yeah. know, with with uh, writing that that assessing it is in itself hard to formalize. I would say. Yeah. I mean, you can say, oh, you know, grammar, use of vocabulary, but then you know, 
for example, if, if I ask the student to write a paragraph, the grammar can shift here and there. Yeah. So sentence one may be perfectly fine. The sentence two is all over the place, you know, and then there's flow and tone. There's so much to, to consider that, that makes it really, really hard to, to, you know, objectively assess across the board. Which is okay. So this Which, is, you know, it's what I'm familiar with. What I'm doing right now, you know, this is something that's that's is is worth kind of um, thinking about because if you look at the the A levels, right, um, in all of the humanities subjects at the A levels, everything is done through essays, basically, and yes, that's um, I'm 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 thinking about how that is possible and how that is different from. The writing portion. But that's of the also SAT? because they use LORMS, right? The uh, well, I forget God, what LORMS stands what for. Yeah. But basically, it gives you brackets with a fair amount of leeway between the brackets, and I think yeah. that works a lot better than saying, "Okay, look, you know, two points for good grammar, one point for bad grammar, you know, for for intermediate grammar." I think. Um, well, I think there there is another, you know, more overarching factor at, when it comes to the A levels, which is. Simply that students who do essay-based subjects at A levels are self-selecting. Uh, to to be fair, yes. Although you have you have the odd people who have no idea what they're doing as well. But I mean, you know, by by and large, I, general, I think that's true. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. In a, there is always somebody, <laughs> but um, right, students don't really subject themselves to three-hour essays if they are not confident about writing to begin with. Right, which. I mean, I guess is one of the big gaps in the pre-university American education system that isn't really addressed I, I'm not, until the university, right? Is it? I, I don't know. I'm not super familiar with things like AP history, AP uh, Right, English. that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. 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 If you do AP subjects, how much writing is required of you? And, um, you know, do A-level students write more than their counterparts in America, in, I, in I the think, US? I actually think that it's kind of a given, at least under exam conditions. Because right. the AP exams don't require... Um, it's definitely not three hours of essay writing. <laughs> yeah. It's broken up into, like, several, you know, short answer questions. Um, mm -hmm. The essay questions are also not as long, I think. Uh, and okay. if okay. my impression, at least, is that they are less argumentative and much more about... Um, much more expository, in a sense. So it's... Is much more about like you know outline the factors that went into the development of X in the Y period kind of mm. thing, and that's okay, okay. stuff that it doesn't um, require a lot of. I mean, the, if you look at LORMS, right? At least for history, for example, I can't I can't say for the other subjects. I'm yeah, less familiar. I, I needed history as yeah. well. So. <laughs> but um, if you look at like LORMS for history, right? The, the the highest level of the LOMS, right? So the LOMS, it's, it's, it's a banding thing. So it's like, okay, at, L, at the very basic level, did the student address the question? Then mm -hmm. the next level is, did the student address, um, did the student provide an argument for their view? Then yeah. L, L3, I believe, That's what, is L1, like, L2, L3, yeah. Yeah, then L3 is, did the student acknowledge the opposing view? Right, and then L four is does the student provide evidence in favor of their view? L five mm -hmm. is does the student acknowledge evidence in favor of the opposing view? Mm -hmm. Right, and then I believe L six is weighing the evidence against each Synthesis. other. Synthesis. Yeah, correct. Yeah. 
So I think um, that's one thing that's kind of missing because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of acknowledged that L6 is the hardest level because that is a part that you cannot regurgitate, right? That's yep. really yep. something that you have to kind of do on the fly and you only really get good at it by really understanding historiography. The nuances of the topic, yeah. yeah. So, um, which it, it's kind of a when when it comes to um, students, right? Like weaker students, right? The teachers will often kind of advise the students to kind of cut their losses, right? Like if you're not confident, uh-huh. let's just mm. get you up to L five, yeah. right? And yeah. I mean, it, it's because of the banding system. If you if you try and weigh evidence, but you haven't laid it out in a coherent manner, you don't. You, you can't get to the top you bending. Absolutely can't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So or, or even to the mid bending as well. I mean yeah. I mean this is this is what I'm faced with right now, right? You know, I'm yeah. teaching a, a science based subject. So naturally a lot of these kids think, okay, if I just lay out the facts sentence right. by sentence, uh I'll be correct. Right. But you know that's not adequate, right? If I say, you know, if I if I just list out a bunch of facts as bullet points and I delete the bullet points so it looks like a paragraph. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's not an argument because it's not coherent. Yeah. It doesn't flow. There is no logical sequence of one from one premise to another. Right. And so that's the challenge I'm faced with right now when and, and this is sort of describing sort of the median of the of the student body as well. Right. Below the median you have the the, the, the students who for whatever reason uh, have difficulty with English comprehension as well. Right. And that's an even bigger challenge. And, you know, partly because of the community that this university is serving as well. I'm I'm curious to know, what's the distribution of freshmen, I mean, to seniors? I don't know. I, I, right. I, can't, I can't tell. And okay. in any case, I wouldn't be able to tell as well. Right. Because I, I mean, the thing about college is that it, happens during a very formative... Yeah, it is a very formative experience, right? And I think mm-hmm. students with three years of college work under their belt probably, hopefully, um, hopefully. <laughs> perform a lot better than students without any... Um, right. Without any... And I think for... And, yeah. you know, this is a first-year intro course, so yep. there, there would be some students who are... You know, this is literally the first ever class they've done in college. Yeah. You know, outside of high school, first post high school class, and so there will be some culture shock. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think, um, I mean, I don't know what resources you know UNM has for like first year students, but generally the large undergrad classes have you know tutoring and stuff. Uh, that's <laughs> I, I'm the only TA, so... Right. Well, that's true. I mean, if, if nobody is coming in for tutoring, then um, no, no no comment. Well, I mean, I, I say, look, you know, if you want office hours, I'll schedule it. And, and uh, it's, it's about a quarter of the semester gone, and I've just received my first two appointments for office hours. Okay. I suspect that is related to the exam, the exam. that just happened. Yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so I mean, I guess uh-huh. it's good that you know students are, are showing up to 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 ask for help. I think that 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 is uh, not always a given. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 
Well, also, I mean, partly because, you know, we are from Singapore and Singaporeans are very, very, very reticent about uh, asking for help yep. <laughs> in general. So, you know, yep. I was expecting the Americans to be a bit more upfront with this, but it seems like there's still this little bit of barrier to overcome as well. Yeah, and I think you're probably seeing a lot of... Okay, so this comes back to the the, the differences, right, in... Um, yep in states and in yes. educational quality and class and equal. yeah exactly yeah, yeah. I, I i suspect um i i okay i can't remember where i read this but i read okay let's be honest it was probably in the new yorker or the atlantic okay um, <laughs> fake news liberal media yeah so um basically one of the distinguishing features of the middle class Right, is that parents inculcate in their kids um, the how would I say ability, not ability, but but the the need basically to ask for what they want. Right, right, which is to some degree how you get the entitled Karen stereotype, but yeah. it's much more about it's much more about you know for example if you are at a restaurant. And, you know, the food is bad, right? To be like, hey, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to eat this bad food, send it back to the kitchen, which has its pros and cons. My personal <laughs> view on this is that it's probably more of a con. Um, right. But it's that... See, I've never been taught that. And, and I think many Singaporeans were never sort of brought up in that yeah. manner. I think also partly because... Singapore is unusual because for our generation, many of us are first time, first first uh, f- well first generation college goers. Yep. Or if if you're not, um, your parents were exceptions, right? So yes, and exceptions in in one way or another. So either you had the means, or your parents had the means to go to college, which marks you out mm-hmm. as an excep- as an exception. That's one thing. The other thing is. Um, your parents may have had an unconventional route. So my dad, for example, did his um, he did his bachelor's degree part time um, distance learning, mm. right? Or I don't know if it's strictly distance learning. I mean, his it's an open university degree, but he may have right. taken in person classes. Which so is yeah. Nonetheless, yeah. right? It's you know the moment you see open university, you're like, oh, okay, this person has a is not your traditional residential, you know undergraduate experience um so i think and i i also think that this you know asking for what you want kind of thing uh is probably particular to the u.s i do not think the british middle Mm. class really does this i don't think the germans really do this Uh, (laughs) not not in the same way um but i think what that kind of engenders is that because uh, again, right, the educational quality is correlated to socioeconomic status, right? And so, yes, when you see that you know Massachusetts, Connecticut, you know, have like very good public um, education systems, that's because well, that's because the communities that live there asked for them. Right. Yes. Um, yes, and they put money into that as correct. well, right? They vote for legislators who put money into this, and they themselves will contribute their own correct. resources to this. Correct. Thing. And, and I, I would be very interested to see sort of what the background 
education system of New Mexico is like, yeah. but I, I don't expect it's anywhere in the top half. No, I'm, I'm pretty the, sure it's not. The nationwide rankings. But I think, like, you know, so it, it the, the next kind of step is then, you know, when these kids in these educational systems, they're not doing well, they ask mm-hmm. why. They're like, yes. what do I need to do to improve? Um, you know, what should I be learning? Can I get a tutor? Blah, blah, blah. And of course, you know, all of those things, right? It, I, I mean, I have extremely mixed feelings about things like, you know, tutoring or like, why did I, why did I not get this mark and stuff like that? But yeah, for better or for worse, right? Um, it does help the student or it gives okay there's feedback how about that right yes, you are correct. getting you're creating yeah. this feedback loop with the student whether or not they act yeah. on that feedback in a proper manner is another thing <laughs> <laughs> um, but at least there is a, a a way for the student to understand <clears throat> like there is a path forward for the student mm-hmm. and yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, and I, so, I mean, yeah. that that basically is what, what I'm trying to struggle with right now. You know, you, you see a whole bunch of students who are not coping with the material and for various reasons mm-hmm. as well. There are some who, you know, are not coping because of extraneous circumstances. Right. Right. Who have to look after ailing parents who are working. And, you know, this is, of course, compounded by the socioeconomic background as well. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is that, that bracket of students who cannot help it. Right, uh, yeah. you know, their attention is being divided seven different ways, yeah. and honestly, my class is the least should be the least of their concerns. Yeah, right. But then there are students as well who um, are not at the level that they should be at to be doing university level courses, and so the question is, how best to help them? What is right? how best to six yeah. year graduation rate? Oh, I don't know, actually. I, I should have looked this up before I applied. But, uh, I mean, let, let's just put it this way. UNM serves historically underserved communities. Yep. At least f- when you look at it from a, from a, from a federal level, yep. right? Um, UNM is, I think, probably the, the, the most prestigious institution in the state. Uh, but the state itself is not exactly, uh, you know, well-to-do. Yep. Um, you know, so you have Hispanic communities... Who you know minorities and because of that the, the socioeconomics are skewed against them, and then you also have the Native American communities who are historically also deeply deeply underprivileged. Yeah. So you have so much sort of structural inequality at work here, um, and it really does sort of skew the uh, educational uh, experience. I think overall. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about this because you. Um Okay, I'm, I'm going to use my extremely loud keyboard and crack <laughs> away at this because I think um, I, I I don't know how... I, I Okay, I suspect that when it's a large public university, um, no matter what happens, right, you're just never going to get as as good of a, of a graduation rate or as high of a graduation rate um, as you would when it's a smaller school and that's just because of mm. the amount of attention that you can give to each student that's one thing um yep. secondly of course if it's a smaller school they are more selective with who they take in 
Exactly. There's more self-selection. Yeah. Yeah, more self-selection and probably more like actual. The admissions committee is probably more selective about like, is this student going to fit in here, and can we give them the Absolutely. help that they need? So, um, the first kind of number that Google threw up was forty-four percent, and it is first-time, full-time undergraduate students who graduated within six years. Bloody hell. Yep, it's 44% at UNM. Oh, that's... Mm, okay, that, I, mean, and, uh, I mean... Fair enough. I think, I mean, I think at the large public universities, that's not, you know, far off. For example, I sure. think University of Texas um, is around 50%. It's really not... Okay, I was wrong about that. I don't know where I got... I think Texas may have 50% at, at four years, possibly. Um, Texas has okay. 81%. 81%. Six years. Let's look at, say, six years. what about, say, another relatively not so well to do state like Louisiana? Okay. University of LSU, uh, Baton Rouge. Yeah. Um, let's just gonna go Louisiana State, uh, 68%. Okay. So I guess UNM is on the sort of low, slightly lower yeah. tier. Um, uh, I would be curious to know. Um, list of U.S. states, like what what kind of factors correlate with graduation rate? Mm. Um, we looking at number of no, not population. I mean, what I'm kind of really looking for would be something like either educational attainment or which is kind of on, it's kind of tautological. Uh, <laughs> economic outcomes, maybe. Um, or economy. State GDP. Yeah, state GDP. Let's let's do that. Mm. Or state GDP per capita, maybe. Yeah, mm, yeah. Let's try That's that. That's So state GDP per capita. Uh, DC is at the top. Surprise. Followed by uh. Massachusetts and New York. Um, uh, wow. <laughs> it goes DC, Massachusetts, New York, Connecticut, Alaska. Alaska was of all money. But, you know, Alaska yes. right now is uh, a little bit in the shitter. Yeah, so it goes Alaska. We've discussed this, right? The yep. the collapse of the UA system. Yep. Uh, we've discussed this off, offline. Offline, off right. okay. Whatever. Delaware, mm. North Dakota, again, all money. Um, and also, uh, oil money and... Uh, wait, is it North Dakota that's the tax haven or South Dakota? One of the one of the Dakotas is a tax haven as <laughs> right. well. So okay, so this is um, it should Oil have money jumped to mine <laughs> immediately, but Mississippi has the lowest GDP capita. Uh, that makes capita. sense, yeah. Yeah. What about Alabama, Missouri? So U of Mississippi has fifty nine percent. That's so high, yeah. Good God! <laughs> and Mississippi State has sixty percent. Huh. Uh, yeah. That, okay. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. This is interesting. I mean, this is good to know. Um, uh, not heartening to know, but still, nonetheless, good to know. Uh, let's look at. I'm. I'm thinking because of the. I, I'm. I'm wondering, like, to what degree that's influenced by, um, immigration, right? So yeah. I'm going to take a look at Arizona State and U of Arizona. Whoops. But I mean, UNM 
It's not well. Uh, well, are you looking at UNM Albuquerque or UNM as a whole system as well? That's a because good question. University of New. Um, that is UNM in Albuquerque. Yes. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Arizona State is yeah, sixty-seven. Mm-hmm. Well, ASU also serves you know Tucson and uh, Phoenix, which yeah. is much, which are much more sort of high high SES yeah. kind of yeah um, <laughs> high SES. Is SES? Sorry. I mean, SES feels like a very Singaporean term, to be honest. It very, it very much is. I think. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty sure. SES. I'm pretty sure that the whole thing began with like a social studies textbook. Yes, that just it did. abbreviated social economic status as SES. And you know how we love our abbreviations. Yeah. Um, U of Arizona is also 60%. So yeah, there's something going on at mm. UNM. <laughs> I, I, I do suspect it really is the fact that we are serving, you know, deeply underserved communities. And this yeah. is UNM. I, can you look up NMSU, New Mexico State, in uh, Las Ooh. Cruces, which is, you Let's know, see. incredibly poor. 44%. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Hmm. So it's the same. I think um, there's also a there's also a kind of brain drain, probably. Yes, that, there probably that's is, happening. Yeah, yeah. out like, west, right? Yeah. They'll go to California, or they yeah. go to Arizona, they go to to Houston, yeah. uh, where I guess you know educational opportunities are much more. So, so it is it is rather worrisome. Uh, but you know, then then the challenge is how do you you know work with this kind of circumstance? But the other thing as well is this, right? This is something that that that, that impacts it's, it's much more selfish because it impacts me more than anyone else mm-hmm. it's um you know how then do we i mean or, or what kind of educational or what kind of experiences as a, as a as a pedagogue will you have if you say spend your entire graduate career in an uh, you know graduate postdoc career in a say iv institution right what kind of you know s- teaching methods will you be ingrained with if you've never had the chance to work with less advantaged students right put it this way yep i mean right. I think to what extent is you know the the sort of the snootiness of the ivy league education system partly a product of the fact that many of the faculty teaching there probably have never left uh the ivory towers of the ivory tower <laughs> right Right. No, I mean, the ivoriest of the ivory tower. It's it's true, right? Like if you've never had to deal with um, students who are weaker than you know, if if all your students are of a similar caliber to what you were as an undergrad, right? You are in a sense less challenged as a teacher. Yeah. Right. Um, because you know you you don't have to develop as many uh, techniques to you know serve a wide range of students. Um, I am, I, okay, and, and I think there is this other factor, right, which is that when you are a, when you are a postdoc or when you are searching for postdoc positions, right, you don't really get, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a buyer's market, basically, right? You don't really get yep. to choose, um, which institution you end up with and you kind of do i mean you have I mean, to apply but you, postdocs you don't teach do. okay that's that's and i true. don't think postdocs are asked to submit a teaching statement unlike you know if you're applying right. for a faculty position right that's um that's on the one hand that's understandable because postdocs are very much uh 
you know, is it very much a temporary like staff scientists or staff yeah. work? They're staff, basically. Yeah. Um, but and on the other as hand, as in they're staff researchers. On the other hand, it is kind of it's kind of interesting that you go from graduate student, you know, with some teaching, and then presumably you go to faculty with teaching, and then the role in the middle does not include any teaching. That's right. I mean, the the teaching as a postdoc comes from, I guess, within the lab mentorship. Right. So within the, the department mentorship of graduate students. But right. that's hardly the, you know... It's very what, different. ...what's really been... Right. And and it does boil back to this whole, you know, question. And this is something that's been... A discussion that's been going on for donkey years, but it's also increasingly becoming uh, much more prominent in the, you know, in the Twitter sphere as well. It's that many faculty are not trained to be teachers. Uh-huh, yep. And so, you know, uh, we're asking a lot from faculty members to come in and be fully formed as educators, Mm -hmm. when in fact, many of them don't have that background in pedagogy. I mean, sure, they may have written a teaching statement as part of the hiring process, but, you know, teaching statements are, are, you know, statements are statements, right? (laughs) You, 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 You invest into it, whatever you want, and you may not even follow what what you say. Yeah, and I think um, when it comes to when it comes to people who are very invested in their fields of study, right? It's very it's it's like difficult for them to kind of step back and realize that what the student wants to hear is not the most interesting and latest cutting edge research that you've just <laughs> come across, right? They they want or they need something that is at a much lower level. Um, yeah. And you need to address those needs first. Uh, I, I think, like, for me, right, uh, I kind of had this... It's not exactly a eureka moment. It's more of a, you know, take a deep breath and try again moment, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yes. But when I was um, doing my... So when I was an undergrad, I did a CELTA course, which is um, teaching English to adult yeah. learners. It's kind of like It's kind of like teaching English to speakers of other languages, basically. Mm-hmm. And I think in my first class, the first class that I actually uh, taught, right? Because, I mean, I was coming from the point of view of, oh, I'm minoring in linguistics. I majored in Spanish. Um, languages are fun kind of thing, right? And then you look at a classroom of students who can barely tell you the parts of speech. And <laughs> you're like, okay, they don't care how cool you think this syntactic structure is. Yep. Right? They just want to get something functional out of you. You just... Your goal... (laughs) Your goal is that they walk out being able to speak a little better than they came in. Yes. Correct. That's it. Um, And so it does require a certain paradigm shift or at least a mindset shift, you know, from... From, you know, you might just be in the lab or talking with your grad students and then you go into a class full of undergrad students and their expectations are very different. Yes. And so you have to align those expectations to them. Um, And it's not, you know, I'm I'm thinking about one of my professors who in the middle of a lecture, like spat out a bit of research. And she was like, that's why you come to a large research university, right? So you can learn about the latest cutting edge research. And um, I mean, I think in that particular case, there there was probably some truth to it because it was a class that virtually nobody 
uh, except linguistics majors and minors will take. Um, right. But that did kind of stick with me because on the one hand, of how rarely it happens, like you can go through the whole of undergrad and your your teachers may never mention their research to you. Yeah. Right? Um, and I won't say that that's a good or bad thing. It's just that <laughs> most undergrads are just not interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, there is, there is uh, some level of, uh, I mean, you have to partition your, 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 your work, work, ba- your work teaching balance yeah. at some point, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it's, it's, yeah. And, and so now the question, you know, that I'm faced with is, okay, what do I need to impart to the students? Which is why I spent the whole of yesterday. I spent, you know, I, I, I feel like, I've, okay, I should not be working on weekends. I know it's an unhealthy work-life balance, but it's mm-hmm. a f***ing pandemic. Yep. What else can we do? Um, but also the thing is that, you know, I spent the whole of yesterday just writing one email. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I feel like I've accomplished something because this is the email to all the undergrads with exam feedback. It's, right. you know, end of exam one. I said, okay, now these are the misconceptions mm-hmm. and, uh, it's two. It's a two-part email. It was part one is okay. What are the most major sticking, you know, problems with your understanding of the concepts? And right. number two was how to write an essay. Right. Um, and that was where I introduced yeah. Peel, which you know, to my surprise, and uh, to be fair, this is because we we were all taught Peel at some yeah. point in our either secondary or, or JC or even, I don't even think, no, it's probably not covered at university, but you not, know, no, Peel is a, is a fairly f- formulaic sort of approach towards high school level writing. Yeah. Um, there are, there are its dis- detractors, you know, partly because it does lead to extremely formulaic and sort of standardized uh, essay structures. Output. Yep. But, you know, when you're dealing with students who don't even have that basics, yeah, that basic level mastered, I think, you know, have, giving them some structure is probably going to be extremely useful. So the, just to clarify, right, Peel, it's a mm. point, explanation, evidence, link, or, you know, the, the two E's, there are always some variations of uh, what Some what people swap that around. So they yep. sometimes go with evidence, it's, then explanation, which yep. I don't like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I will say when I was teaching English, right, one thing that my mentor said was um, putting evidence first and then drawing a, then having an elaboration after uh, should only be done by stronger students. And the reason for that yes. is when your evidence comes before your elaboration, um, your elaboration has to be extracted out of the evidence, which is much harder. Yes. You're, so, you're basically turning it yeah. into an analogy. Correct. And analogizing or, you know, metaphorizing for that matter. Correct. Uh, requires a much higher, com- a much stronger command of the, of the language. Correct. To, to, in order to sort out the nuance. Yeah. And, and because you also have to then separate out, you know, from the example, what isn't exactly relevant. Yes. And I think it's, it's very challenging for students to not depend on the, on the example as the point, right? Yes, correct. Um, it's, it's very easy. Because no example is perfect. Yeah, correct. And it's very easy. When you go, f- when you start with a point, then you elaborate on that point, right? So, I mean, like I said, there are, there are different, the, the two E's, right? There are mm-hmm. different names for it. Sometimes but, even three E's or four E's, I've seen variants but, of this. Yeah, but basically, um, usually 
one of them will be called either explanation or elaboration, and then the yep. other pair will be called either um, example or evidence. Yes. Right. And um, so usually you go point, and then you elaborate on that point, and then you give an example of that point, and then you link yep. that point back into your main essay thesis. Right? That's right. So um, when you go evidence first, what happens a lot is that the student fails to abstract the point properly, right? And then yeah. what you end up with is you have a point with one piece of evidence in support and nothing else. Whereas if the student yes. does an elaboration first, the reader at least is left with the impression that, okay, um, this argument has been substantiated somewhat. Mm -hmm. Maybe not it's with good developed. examples. Yeah, maybe not with good mm -hmm. examples, but I can see what they're getting at, right? Yeah. Whereas if you go evidence first, it sounds like because company blah, 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 blah did X, Y, Z and they were successful, this point is true, which is the worst kind of argumentation. <laughs> yeah. Anecdata. Yep, exactly. <laughs> I, no, I, absolutely. Found, I, I found while teaching um, English... By far, the hardest thing for students to understand is the link. Yes, it really is. Yeah. Right? There is, and for that, you really need clarity of thought. Yeah. You need to have a ability to step back from the nitty gritty of the argument and look at the bigger picture, which is where you know having a strong intro introduction really matters, right? If your introduction, this is what I tell to all my students: if your introduction is weak, your argument is going to be weak because you have no idea what you're arguing about or arguing Correct. for. Correct. Uh, I think the, the difficulty with the link, right, is that when I, part of it is, is just kind of a, a logistical issue, which is that, you know, when you start writing your essay, you have a broad view. And when you're in your points, you're drilling down. And the yep. link is meant to take you back from an extremely specific point to the most general point that you're making. Right? Yes. So you've taken your thesis, you've broken it down into three or four sub-points, and now you are in the deepest part of the sub-point, which is the evidence. Yes. And now yes. you have to bring it out to back to your main thesis. And a lot of students struggle with that because, um, firstly, for this to work, your sub-point cannot have deviated too far. <laughs> yes, And that's correct. something that a lot of students do, right? They get caught up in... Mm. in the details. The minutiae, yeah. Yeah, and they can't get back out into why the detail is relevant. That's one thing. Yeah. The other thing is, yeah. is a symptom of the fact that they're not used to linking um, the link. They're not used to kind of like making their arguments cohere in the first place. Yes. Right? Because when you are yeah. arguing, especially like if you are you know, just having a conversation with a friend and you are trying to argue a point, um, that argument is very linear and the conversation goes wherever it goes. You don't necessarily yes. have to come back to the point that you started with. But when you're writing but an also, essay, you need sorry, a, yeah. you just need like this this structure and you're you're mm -hmm. it's it's much more like a tree or a pyramid, whichever direction you're looking at. And ultimately mm -hmm. it still has to come back down to the root. Yes, yeah. but you know, and all this is also not helped by the fact that students are usually writing essays under a time crunch. Yep, yep. 
under at least for exams, right? This is a lot easier to navigate if you're giving students an open, you know, a, a, a non-timed assignment yep. where they can, you know, take the time to step back and, and okay, you know, and look at this. If you're if you've got say thirty minutes to bash out five paragraphs, yeah. but that's right? not time yeah. at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you know it's it's going to it's going to to be challenging, and y- you do see that in exams, right? You get students who can't even finish the essay. I'm, uh, you get students who yeah I'm don't curious. even attempt the essay. I'm curious for the GRE, right? For the analytical writing portion, did you finish the essay? Yeah, so I did not. Oh, okay. I did not finish the essay. I was like, ah, there is no time. Um, I, think, and, I think I did uh-huh. rush to finish the essay. There, right. there was a bit of a time crunch at the end. Right. Because I didn't, they don't actually give you a lot of time to it's write. It's not enough time. Um, right, yeah. So then going back to, you know, testing and what's the goal of testing, right? Mm. I, I just kind of figured when you, with an analytical writing portion, like, like what you get in the GRE, um, they are looking for the ability to formulate arguments. Um, right. that are somewhat coherent. And, you know, mm. if you never reach the conclusion, <laughs> I, I was just that's, like, okay, you I know guess. what? It's, it's fine. And you, you, you have seen me writing, right? I mean, that's part of the, that's <laughs> the goal. The, 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 the main elements are there already. Yeah. But obviously when you're writing and, you know, if it's an exam and it's an essay question, you, you do have to finish. And that's much more yes. challenging when the time that's allotted is, uh, this is, okay, this is another thing, right? If they, uh, uh, when I'm, I'm thinking about the, the GCAA levels, and there's always this one student who can write like five pages in 45 minutes. Yeah, those are un- unbelievable people. Right? <laughs> and, inhuman, yeah. And on the one hand, as a student, you're thinking, okay, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. So what's yeah. a reasonable amount to write? And mm-hmm. of course, the reasonable amount is, you know, you have to formulate a complete argument, which depending yes. on the subject, lends itself to a certain length, right? Like for yes. literature, generally, you, you aim for about three sides. For history, yeah. maybe Same it was with like... history as well. Yeah. Right? Um, for history, usually, I think two or and a half thereabouts. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it it varies by school, varies by student, and it things really like does, that. Yeah. But Teacher I think, well, like, yeah. from the teacher's point of view, it's very hard to say that you should aim for X amount of pages or X length because that really depends on the student's ability to fill up to fill out that content. Yes, and what you are seeing with the students who are able to hit five, six, seven pages, right, is that they have all the arguments already ready to go. They are not, they don't have to think, almost. They yeah. see the question and yeah. they go. And that's not true of most students and it shouldn't be true of most students. Like, you do not right. want Which a student... I, actually, I mean, I, but it, actually, those kinds of students sort of defeat the purpose of the exam as yeah. well, or, or an exam because if right. you're memorizing, you know, the model essay and you're going and blah, you know, just basically just copy pasting what's in your brain to, out onto the paper there's no synthesis to be fair there's no thinking to be fair i think the students at least the ones at my school right who were mm. capable of doing these things they mm-hmm. were effectively like, they thought this prodigies. yeah you know yeah, the, yeah they they just know the material so well like it's automatic 
but yep. I think for a for a teacher, right? Like it's it's you okay. The thing is, every student we hope is trying their best, right? I, 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 you know, I wouldn't expect. I well, I, I think it would be uncharitable of me to 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 assume otherwise. Right. Yeah. It so, would be unteacherly of me to assume otherwise <laughs> as well. So I think you know if um, you you don't want to kind of tell a student like your essay is too short, you need to write faster, or you know like in order to get in X amount of material, you can only have five minutes of planning time. I mean. <laughs> That's counterproductive. It's very counterproductive it's, it's, for the yeah. students who are really struggling. Because that's right. wherever they spend the most time, that is where they just, they need that, that time. And if they are spending like too much time working out their argument, and then in the end, they only get like partway through whatever they've, they've thought through in detail, that's probably what's most beneficial for that student. I agree. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I mean, this just goes back to the testing argument, right? How do you, how do you, <laughs> what's the purpose of testing? And yeah. um, how do you get an accurate gauge of how the student is doing and what they need to do to improve? Like, it's very difficult to do that, actually, under exam conditions. Yeah. You know, it's, we've been talking for 15 minutes and I didn't actually get to what I really want to talk about. This oh, okay, week, which is. Which is uh, you know, uh, teaching accessibility or accessibility of of teaching tools. Uh, that would which be I guess we have to talk about next week because yeah. you know, I'm still gripe. I'm I, I'm still gonna bitch about it at some point because it is such a pain in the ass. Yeah. But we can talk about it next week. Yeah. Or when our next episode, <laughs> which may not be next week. Uh, yeah. Depending. Yeah. So I depending. mean, I to roll way back to a point that was mentioned earlier about <laughs> Singaporean students and reticians. Yeah. Um, so I'm currently doing a, um, a full-stack web development boot camp, right? And um, next week is the last week. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, gosh, time flies. Yeah. Okay. And um, we've been, you know, chatting with our teachers and stuff like that. And um, towards the, around the middle of the boot camp, right, the, the teachers started getting really... Um, they they just started saying like we're not getting enough questions. <laughs> so what the way that the system works is that once the challenges for that day start, right? If you are stuck, you raise a ticket, which is right. is it's a very standard kind of way of doing it in 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 a tech support context, pretty much, right? Yes, um, <laughs> it is tech support. Yeah, yeah, it is tech support. You raise a ticket, and the DJ yeah. comes over and and asks how you're doing. Um, and tries to, you know, help you fix the problem. And um, they basically said there are not enough tickets coming through. <laughs> right? Like, is that part of the KPI or something? No, it's not part <laughs> of the KPI, but I think their concern is that once yeah. you get out of the realm of stuff that is easily, that it's easy for them to check. Because mm -hmm. um, in the, the early part of the boot camp, right, you're doing effectively problem sets. And yep. those are automatically graded, right? And mm -hmm. they can they can see how you're doing. But once you get into projects, they can't see anything. Because there are there are no there are no there is no automatic grading, right? They have to see yep. how you're progressing based on what you show yes. them. So you have to reach out when you are stuck. 
And yeah. Um, yeah, and they said, yeah, we're just not seeing any tickets, which is great if you are, you know, really not getting stuck. But if you are stuck and you're not telling us, we have no way of knowing. And yeah, they just basically started I, getting on our case about I, it. <laughs> I wonder, you know, the the extent to which this is a, a, a product of Singaporean culture or a or something we've inherited from our colonial past in, you know, the, the whole British, you know, oh, don't let me bother you kind of thing. The, you know, uh, right. yeah, the, the too, too polite to, to cause a fuss kind of uh, a sensibility, which, you know, is very much a part of our culture here. But to what extent, I wonder, is this a holdover of, of you know, our recent past? Right. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to know as well. And I mean, I have to say that I probably, I raised very few tickets in general, um, so I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm definitely, you know, in a sense guilty of this. Um, mm-hmm. but the, from my point of view, if I can solve a problem myself, which is often the case, right. Yeah. Then I, I don't yeah. raise a ticket. Um, well, I mean the way, the way I see it and I, I you know you encounter a lot of this when you're actually out there in the, in the, in the wilderness, writing <laughs> your own code yep. or, you know, writing your own analysis pipelines. Yeah, at least in terms of of coding, right? The the idea is that look, every or at least for every problem you encounter, there's a ninety to ninety nine percent chance that someone has already yeah. encountered this problem, yeah. and there's a solution out there on Stack Overflow. Yeah, I think I mean for for my part, right? I probably what's um, where I feel it costs me the most is whether my solution is a good practice, mm. right? Because right. that's where you need extra eyes. Um, but yeah. I, I, I do think, um, you know, we were having like an after, after class chat with one of our instructors and we were asking, uh, you know, how, um, how are we as a batch compared to some of the other mm-hmm. batches you've taught? And he said very diplomatically, um, <laughs> I think this is the most Singaporean batch that I have taught <laughs> in that you guys... Don't ask questions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, guilty as charged, I guess. <laughs> it's it's interesting, but you know, and on on the flip side, right? Uh-huh. This is why I, I I mean, it's not well, not for lack of trying, but you know, I see people who develop software having to spend at least an hour of their day just answering the most inane questions on the help groups, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, increasingly, a lot of these bioinformatics softwares, uh, is, you know, it's written by, by, by academics. Right. They run a Google Groups page where people can ask for help. And then it's always like the same five questions coming in every single day. Yeah. And then it's usually, the, the you know, this assistant professor or associate professor who wrote this software having yeah. to sit down and walk these poor hapless souls through Solutions that they've already answered a million and four times. Yeah. Which is not great if your primary audience consists of other academics. Yeah. That's and, you know, not like, a good sign. And it's it's usually basic problems like, is the path variable properly configured? <laughs> is your input file properly configured? You know, I mean, come on. Yeah. I, and I, you don't want to be one of those people where you know you, that you scoff at going, ah, this guy's RTFM. This super stupid question. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, as with all things, right, um, this is very much a, as, again, as an instructor, you have to determine whether, like, what's the medium 
for the group that you're teaching. I mean, it's yes. probably true that in our in our class, we, we could do with more questions. I think there is also that very Singaporean thing of like, you don't want to lose face, right? Yeah. And so if you don't understand something the first time, you figure it's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to say anything because nobody else is saying anything. So everybody else understands. I don't want to be that don't, person. Don't ask until everything crashes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, everything's on fire. Like, don't be that person who who's like, I don't get it. Can you can you explain it again? And then everybody's yeah. like, oh, he doesn't. But that is very British. Yeah. That is also very very British. Yeah. It's yeah. It's, we we we've inherited one of the worst aspects of British culture. <laughs> Definitely. Well, one I mean, off. So the funny thing is, there is an American who is doing this, who is doing the bootcamp remotely. He is the guy who is mm-hmm. always. Can you say that again? Sorry, <laughs> I didn't get. It. Can you explain it again? Yeah. <laughs> um, am, am I surprised? No. No, of course not. And I mean, I, I, I think um, it is nice to have a diversity of uh, student behavior. Approaches. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely one of those things that sometimes, sometimes you do want to expect more. If you are like I, you know, like I was saying, if your if your primary audience is other researchers, they should know yep. how to do their research. I mean, there's such a huge variance across the research community, and you have, I mean, you have some people who you know are coming into bioinformatic analysis without any bioinformatic background, right? mm-hmm. undergrads, even grad students, right? You know, yep. I, I think I think all of us are fairly privileged in that, you know, since primary school, we've had some exposure to coding. But you have to bear in mind that for a whole bunch of graduate students, you know, uh, and, and, okay, if you take take, take my case, I'm coming to grad school already with publications, Mm -hmm. which means that, sorry, I have some some experience with writing. I have some experience with the peer review process, Mm -hmm. which, you know, is, is, is a, is a huge hurdle, right? And then many grad right, students yeah. don't actually have this background, so they're being so. So the learning curve is steeper for some students than others. You know, as someone right. who's coming in slightly older, well, significantly older than the average graduate student, about six years older than the average graduate student. Right. Um, you know, you you see that the baseline is extremely uneven, right? Right. You have someone, you have, and, and you know, amongst the older graduate students, you also see some variants. You have people coming from the military. Uh, yeah, and that, UNM has a lot sense, of people yeah. coming in from from the military. We have yeah. a bunch of Air Force people, a bunch of former Army Army people, um, and then you have people who've been in industry, right? Where again, right. background is extremely different. I've had a bit of a mix doing consultancy and academia, right? Right, and so you know, you can't expect everyone coming in to be going, oh yeah, you know, I can code natively like a like a pro or even like a like a like a beginner coder a lot of right. people you know struggle even with the command line and so if you write a software like the one i'm using right now the you know daddy which is entirely in python mm-hmm. uh which you know prior to two weeks ago i had no idea how to read python syntax <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've, I've just i've just learned basic python right having to write a a script to tell the program what to do is an incredibly difficult thing to do Right. I mean, that's And so a lot of people, you know, they default back to GUIs. And, you know, the higher level you go, the less, the the rarer GUIs become. Yep. Yep. I think all of that, I mean, all of that is fair, right? I think um, the thing is, 
it, it comes back down to like that question that we started with, which is like, when you are a student, what is your expectation? Like, what do you want to get out of the class? And yes. as a teacher, how do you provide that to mm. the student? And I think yeah. with without um, the student telling you, it's very hard as a teacher to guess what it is that they're looking for and what it is that they're not getting from you that they want. So I think um, I, I would be I would be curious to know like so for okay so this is an an, an interesting situation where um, my batch at the boot camp is the first batch that is subsidized by IMDA mm-hmm. and I think that probably contributes to like a very big difference in the makeup of the students. Right. Right. Yeah. Where the previous batch, they paid their own money. It was a lot of money. And so they know what they want and they are going to ask for it. Yes. Right. Whereas, mm, right. Where, yeah. Whereas a group that is, especially one that is subsidized by IMDA in the middle of a pandemic, is very clear what people uh-huh. want, which is a job. Yes. Right. Um, well, I, I, I think, yeah. you know, this this does point to the utility. And, you know, I've, I used to scoff at this, but I think right now this this does highlight the importance of goal-setting exercises at the beginning oh, yeah. of the semester. Yeah. Yeah. So at least the instructor gets a sense of what the students want out of the course. Yeah. Uh, what the most pressing needs are. I, and, you know, this is, of course, contingent on the fact, on, on, on the students knowing what they want or yeah. thinking they know what they want. And yeah. I, it's a good way of, of sort of, you know, sussing out what students think they want, yeah. what the instructor thinks they can provide, and then finding the happy medium as well. Yeah. And of course, there is that journey of discovery, obviously, as students realize, oh, I don't actually need this. I need this other thing instead. Oh, I thought you know, I wanted I this. I don't need to know. But I actually yeah, I don't. thought I wanted to know more about biology, but I actually need to know more about writing. Right, yeah. Matter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. I think this is probably a good place to stop. That's uh, a nice, yeah. Yeah. It's a as good a wrap-up as we'll get, probably, without delving into a whole different topic. I mean, Python would have been a great segue into cross-platform learning, but we'll, uh, we'll save that for next episode. We'll save that. I have so much to say. It'll fill two hours of just non-stop I will. I will probably um, be more free next week because <laughs> um, my boot camp ends next week. And today, mm, this right. morning, I woke up and I realized I need to rewrite a bunch of code which I will probably do after this <laughs> I have a whole day lab exercise yeah. to, to work on <laughs> on ArcGIS on a virtual desktop <laughs> Good which luck. is why I will have enough rage fuel to, to rant about this next week alright okay so <laughs> this is uh, this has been episode 12 of Monkey Mind 12. and you can find the show notes for this episode at monkeymind.xyz slash 012 And uh, we will see you whenever we see you. (laughs) All right. Whenever we feel like it. Whenever we feel like it. Whenever we're not too sleepy. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) Huh.